Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, February the 3rd, 2021. This is episode 2818 of the Survival Podcast. Today I've got a great one for you. I had an interview today with Nick Jamel, who created a website, podcast, and community called Conversation of Our Generation, a blogging podcast where he is trying to solve the problems of today with the wisdom of the past. He's also the author of his brand new book, Property Rights in the Digital Age, which uses principles of liberty, lessons from history, and an assortment of current of our current situation to point a way forward for preserving and expanding your rights. Um, this is going to be a great conversation. I can say that with total confidence because, well, it already happened. I, a lot of times I'm cutting the intro prior to uh, doing the show. Today is one of those days where I got behind, so I'm doing it afterward. So I'm going to tell you, this is a great interview. I want to let you know something, though, about it. At the very end of our discussion, it is going to sound like I abruptly cut him off and say, let's finish. I didn't do that to cut him off. I did that because he sent me a text message that I got to go. I got another commitment, and we're running up against it. So uh, that's why that happened. Just want to let you all know that because it will sound a bit abrupt, but it needed to be, and it was for him, not for me. I would have continued the conversation another 30 minutes if he had had the time and wanted to. All right, before we get into talking about conversations of our generation, have a great conversation about it, I might say, uh, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is the Ridge Wallet. Um, I'll tell you what, we're going to talk a little bit about philosophy today, and I think minimalism is a philosophy. Maybe not a, a deep, long, in-depth philosophy like Stoicism, but I think it is a modern philosophy of minimizing that which we have because we've gotten into a, a place where people have so many things. And I'm big on EDC, which means I probably have more on my body at any given time as far as functionality than most people do. But at the same time, as a minimalist, I try to have less quantity in the form of bulk. And so when I heard about the Ridge Wallet, I thought, well, this is a great idea. I just don't know if it'll work for me because I wasn't ready to give up. I mean, I carried around a, a billfold for so long, a big old lump on my butt. And if I'd carried it that long, well, I must need it. I'm logical, right? So, but I'm like, you know what I'm going to do? Since they want to be a sponsor, I'll have them send me one. I'll put everything in it that I can carry that fits in it. I'll carry it, see how I like it. And I'll put my billfold over there on the, the bookcase, and it's not gone. I can always get it back. I've never put it back in my pocket yet. Never. I, you know, I was just thinking about, you know what I should do? I should, I should give it, like with one of my old driver's licenses and some other random things, to my, to my grandson as a keepsake. I'm ready to let go. After three years carrying the Ridge Wallet, I'm ready to let go. If you give the Ridge Wallet a try, maybe you're not as stubborn as me, you'll let go of your billfold even faster, and it protects you from identity theft. Check them out. You guess where at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine, the magazine that I've been a reader of and subscribe, well, reader of since 93 and a subscriber of since 94. Do I need to say more about how much I endorse this magazine? I look forward to getting this. It's a quarterly magazine. That used to be every you know six times a year, and that's four times a year. But these are big, thick editions, these quarterly magazines. It's just a smarter way to do things. Two less shipping, but just as much, if not more, information. Um, 
I read every episode from cover to cover by the time it's all said and done. I have a big stack of them upstairs. I refuse to throw them away. It's too much valuable information. If you check out Backwoods Home today, you will agree with me if you give them a shot. You can learn more, you guessed where, backwoodshome.com. With that, let's go ahead and get into our discussion. Again, I want to remind you, if you skipped the very, very beginning, that you're going to hear an abrupt end to this interview. It was because Nick texted me during the interview and said, hey, I got to go. So that's why it's not me cutting him off. With that, I want to say, hey, Nick, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. And with that, folks, I want to welcome Nick to the Survival Podcast. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, Jake. Or Jack, thanks for having me on. Hey, man, good to have you on. Um, I want to start out a little bit different than I usually do with a guest. Uh, as you might know by, by you know paying attention to the show, we usually have a quote of the day every day we lead off with. And I usually don't uh, make that segment with the guest, but today I want to do that because I think that the quote I had planned just kind of really fit this show. It just happened to in, in a way because I have these things kind of planned out for like weeks in advance. Um, but this one was by Robin Sharma who said, The conversations you are most resisting are the conversations – you most need to be having. And, and since we're talking about the conversation of our generation today, I thought that'd be a good good opening for us. How, how do you feel about that? It makes me think of, I, I've run a store as a store manager, and it makes me think of like managing people, and when you have to have the hard conversations of people's bad performance, of <laughs> that's the hardest thing to do. It's very easy to be like, hey, here's basically how you do things. Here's how your normal day should go. But when you have to fire somebody, when you have to correct somebody's behavior, it's tough. And our culture, we have a very – it's very easy for us to shout talking points at each other. But we don't want to actually dive deep into what's underlying the Fox News and the CNN talking points and see what the axioms are and how we really approach problems at a deeper level because those are tough. And it really takes a lot of soul-searching to know why you believe what you believe and – I think that that is something that we're afraid of a lot as a culture right now. That's that's really great. I'm glad we did this because you pushed me in a different direction with it than I was thinking. Like, so to me, it's very that's very Machiavellian, and it, this might be the most abused Machiavellian quote there is because it usually is done without context. But it doesn't mean it's yeah. not valid, and it's that those who are who are kind when they are kind when they should be cruel will be cruel when they should be kind. And I've kind of talked about that before, where when you have to fire people and your company's going to suffer if you don't, instead of firing some people today, you end up firing everybody tomorrow. And I think there are a lot of uh, conversations like that that we tend to try to avoid. They tell us, you know, don't discuss religion and politics. And it seems to me that it might make a lot better sense to teach people how to discuss religion and politics without cursing at each other. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I, I, I mean, I know that my family, we grew up having hard conversations about, you know, those sorts of things. And there were times where it got really heated and voices kind of got raised. But at the end of it, when you care about the person on the other side of it, you know that and you trust the other person on the other side of the conversation, then you know that they have your best interest in mind. And whatever they're saying isn't an attack on you, but it's them expressing themselves. And I think that if you're trying to do that well, and you're getting to those hard points that are hard to make, and it, it really, 
allows you to come out of the other side of that gauntlet stronger and more knowledgeable and hopefully taking away a lot of great lessons. So you are the founder of Conversation of Our Generation. What led you to do that and, and kind of tell us a little bit about what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it started uh, four years ago as me sitting in a digital marketing class in college realizing that I had a lot to learn about actually implementing marketing ideas. And I had a great professor who forced us to like, one of our things was to create a blog. And I, before that, I really started diving into that. I was just like, I need to learn how to use Facebook ads. I need to learn how to do all these things to work in WordPress after listening to your show for a while as well. It just prompted me to, to try something. And that's how I just was like, okay, well, what do I want to write about? And I was like, well, I want to write about politics and religion and spirituality and economics and history and all of these things. And so what kind of ties that together and what it was for me is solving the problems of today with the wisdom of the past. How do we learn from all of these great thinkers of the past that we have? Like Machiavelli, I talk a lot about the prince. Uh, I think that that's a huge way of looking at politics today and a huge influence on how we understand that. And taking these thinkers and applying the lessons that they had, like using quotes, using the overarching themes and saying, what does that, what can we learn from that today? And how can we use that to solve actual problems that we're facing? Gotcha. I, uh, I completely think that's a, just a, a, a brilliant way to be coming at this because we literally can't have conversations today like you're talking about in many instances because people don't have any respect for each other or each other's ideas. It, it, it is not, a debate can be a discussion, but it usually isn't. And it usually isn't because each side comes to the discussion rather than with an intent to learn from each other and to understand each other to prove themselves right. Mm -hmm. And that, that makes a conversation very difficult to have to the point where if you have one side willing to do that and the other side isn't, The side that's willing to usually says, I'm not doing this. As soon as you identify it, like, okay, then then there's no point to this. If we're going to be in denial of reality, if we're going to use nothing but fallacies in the discussion, we're going to appeal to authority, we're going to use fallacies as special pleading, uh, we're going to use red herring, we're going to move goalposts. Like if, When you're in a conversation with somebody whose entire response is just like, well, we can just go to your logical fallacy is and figure out what you're doing now, It makes that discussion almost impossible, mm -hmm. and it, it's it's maddening, honestly. And and the other side of it, though, is I used to get really angry about it. Now I just kind of have educated to myself to the point of understanding why we're there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's tough because I think people approach a conversation as a competition rather than sort of cooperation or co-creation together. Because if you look at it as I'm going to engage with this person and put forth my ideas and accept maybe that I might be wrong about some things or that it might bring up some good points that they never heard. And you can kind of build off each other and sort of have a yes and conversation. Oh, yeah, I like that point and this. And then at those times where, you know, maybe you need to correct something. Hey, you said this. I don't know if I fully agree with that because of X, Y and Z. I think that it's hard to come by those kinds of conversations. But when they do happen, And when you're able to find those, and that's why I love having my podcast and being able to bring on some good guests there because you can, I mean, I ask them questions in interview, but I like to 
really test ideas with people who know things that I don't know. Um, and I find being able to do that with people that you find on Twitter that are actually trying to think about these ideas is tremendously helpful in growing and learning. And I find that when I have those kinds of conversations where it's trying to get at truth together, trying to create something and be productive together rather than combative, I come away feeling a lot better, but also learning a lot more instead of thinking like coming away being angry at the other person and thinking that I won, but also, you know, knowing that they're coming out the other side thinking that they won (laughs) because neither of us listen to each other. I think that that's not the kind of conversation that I want to be having. No, I I totally agree with that. I also kind of want to bring this point up here with the work that you're doing and the, 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 the viewpoint you're coming from. And I, I, I shudder to use this word because it's it's been destroyed in its meaning. It now means Republican. But you're you, in a lot of ways, and it doesn't. It's not supposed to. And most people that say, I'm not a Republican, I'm a conservative, are also n- like, no, you're not. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it really is just code for I'm a Republican, but I don't like some Republicans. But you do come from kind of a conservative vantage, but you do that in a way that is based on Ideas that have lasted and stood the test of time have value. Even Mm -hmm. if we're going to move beyond them, we should do so carefully. Because every advancement in ideas has meant the death of a previous idea. But there are ideas that have survived that death, you know, that death call over and over and over again. And to me, we shouldn't just abandon them without very careful analysis as to why we're abandoning them or even removing a piece of it. Like, cause uh, you, you start pulling a string and the whole tapestry comes apart. Sometimes the tapestry is mm-hmm. ugly and it needs to go, right? But a lot of times these, these ideas, these fundamental concepts of how to treat people, these fundamental concepts of like how to actually analyze an idea and decide, yeah, this is, this is valid or not, rather than what do people think right now? These are really valuable. Can you kind of talk about why it's important to have respect for these ideas that have been around a while? Mm-hmm. For sure. I, I mean, I take it back to the idea that, you know, I, I don't know if Newton actually said it, but we're standing on the shoulders of giants, right? And I feel like our culture is doing that and then kind of pissing on the giant's head every chance it gets. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like that's what it seems like because we're we have great thinkers like Aristotle, like Machiavelli, great literature like Shakespeare and Dostoevsky and things that can really enrich your life and make you think about things and see things that you wouldn't otherwise see, right? You can reach back into history and learn about the situations that people faced and how they dealt with them and hopefully avoid many of the cycles of regimes that we continuously go through because we don't ever learn the lessons. Either that or people are just, maybe there's some inevitability when you have enough people that things are going to happen like that. But I feel like Aristotle's ideas still stand today. We talk about in the Declaration of Independence and our founding fathers talk about we hold these truths to be self-evident. And those truths are things that are eternal principles that can be discovered through human reason, and they stay there no matter whether or not we acknowledge them. And I find that that's the case with truth in general. And so wherever you can find truth that lasts for 2,000 years or more, I think you have – 
you have to have a very, very good reason to overturn that. And I think there are times where that happens with institutions like slavery. I think we had a very good reason to overturn that institution, and that's a good thing. But you also have to do those things carefully because if you look at how in the United States, I'm reading a book on Lincoln right now, and the way we overturned slavery, we were the only Western nation that fought a war over it. England and France and all these European countries got rid of slavery without a war in the same century that we did. Even all the pretty much all the Central American and South American countries got rid of slavery in that century without a war. So how do we go about it wrong (laughs) and not learn from some of the other solutions that were out there? And how do we not balance the different values that we hold of freedom and peace and justice? And you have to, it's a tough balancing act that you have to find a way to do. But I think the biggest thing is these ideas, there's an idea, something called the Lindy effect. And it is the longer something lasts, the longer it will most likely last. And so if an idea lasts 2000 years, if something like the institution of the family, right, having a family unit as a building block of a society that's been around for, I mean, tens of thousands of years, there was probably around, it was probably around before anybody wrote about it, right? Or even made pictograms about it. Like, yeah. people probably naturally assembled <laughs> into, it might not be exactly as we see it today, but something resembling the typical family unit for as long as humans have moved together in, in what we would call tribes. Mm-hmm. Yep. Especially since we've had sort of that movement from the anatomic human to what they kind of call like the spiritual human. There's Mm. some point where 50 or 70,000 years ago, I forget exactly where we were doing a lot of the same things, but then all of a sudden we had language and art and we're, you know, using tools in new ways. Ever since that point, whatever that is, I feel like we could say that there's probably that interrelational aspect that is deeper than what you get out of a primate. And, uh, I, that kind of institution, I mean, I think where our culture is doing a lot to attack that and try to split up families and promote as much as possible, you know, this sort of, I think, overzealous individualism where it's, you don't need even your family. But that's something that I think will stick around for much, much longer because it's stuck around so long. And there's other ideas like that that are the same way. Yeah, I mean, that kind of leads into what my next question is. Why do you think it, it's under such attack? And I don't just mean... The family unit. I mean everything that is yesterday and back, it seems like, is now evil. You, if you mm-hmm. look at someone like, so people are very, a, a lot of these people that crap all over, you know, the history of America, or I should say the United States of America before I trigger somebody, um, <laughs> are also, though, very quick to wrap themselves and clothe themselves in the protections of the Constitution, right? I mean, and if you look mm-hmm. at our system of government, and I've, I've been one to agree with John Bush sometimes and say the Constitution, the key part of it is the con, um, because it's either failed to do what it was supposed to do or was never intended to do what it was supposed to do in the first place, which was strict government. Um, however, mm-hmm. as, as a pragmatist, I'll look at it and say, okay, we put that system of government in. The United States then proceeded to, in very short order, become the standard by which the rest of the world judged itself. So in spite of its flaws, it got a lot right. 
Because if it didn't, <laughs> we would be, you know, the United States of Nigeria today instead of the United States of America in, in form and function, if not name. So when I look at that, and then I listen to these people, let's say, if you bring up something about James Madison, they'll just, oh, oh, God, he's part of Manifest Destiny. My God, he was behind the Louisiana Purchase. I mean, oh, my God, he was just horrible. He's known as the father of the freaking Constitution you claim to, to, to value, right? And, and that Constitution is what led to the most prosperous society on the planet. Now, there's tons of stuff. I probably more than that person that I can put down about what we did and how we did it. I, I, I'm not going to turn away from what was good in it and what led us to where we are. Why do you think there's such a need that when anybody points to any example to completely, totally, 100% vilify it today? I think that there's... <laughs> that was an exasperated oh, sigh. Holy shit. <laughs> that gave me a run for my money. Holy crap. <laughs> Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're fine. It's, it's, I think that there is a very, there's a lot of power in attacking whatever that is, uh, whatever has been built because, you know, as you know, that whenever there's a recession, whenever there's trial, trials and tribulations, there's a lot of opportunity there. And I think, it, especially with government, the best way for them to have to claim more power, to have people who are already like your Jeff Bezos or your uh, Jack Dorsey's, right? Those kinds of incredibly powerful people, the best way for them to hold on to power is to have crises that need to be solved by the people in power. And so I think that there's part of it that wants to undermine whatever we have as far as the system goes that preserves our liberties. And I do think the other thing is if you look at how Marxist thought works, there is a radical shift from when Marx wrote to like the 20th century where this idea of speech being able to be whatever you want it to be and just that speech is just a mechanism of the bourgeois that is – we have to harness it for ourselves and use it against them. And that's where you have things like the Frankfurt School and all of these – sort of neo-Marxist thinkers come along and they give us the things like critical race theory and all they're trying to do is tear down the institutions that they see as bourgeois, even though it's really a lot of those institutions. I mean, the classical, you know, your three R's, right? All, your classical education is the best thing for your common person, right? I mean, our education system is serving the poorest among us worse now than it was before these people took a, before John Dewey and some of these people took a hold of our education system. Agreed. And sorry, I said agreed. Uh, oh yeah, and so and so I think that that is a huge part of it. That you know there was that thing I don't know a few months ago about like two plus two equals five on it was going crazy because there are people who say that you know. You can even take the terms of mathematics. And yeah, if you mean five is four, you know, all of a sudden, you know, we want to change the number five and mean that it equals, you know, when you count one, two, three, five, it's that next number there. Okay, but you can't change how these eternal principles work by naming them differently. Yeah. And I think that that's so much of what they're trying to do is because it's like what in 1984 – 
you know, it's not about two plus two equaling five. It's about two plus two being whatever Big Brother wants it to be, right? That's the thing that that's what gives someone power is not that they can change what's true or that they can, you know, make you evolve truth to like a higher level and bring more truth out of something and maybe go away with Newtonian physics and bring in Einsteinian physics. Like that's a evolution in the right way, but or a building upon something. But if you can just say physics are whatever we want them to be today, now you have the power to control anything. <laughs> yeah. Really. <laughs> yeah. You know why I think it I think this is an old formula of blame the past to change the present. I think that's always been done by people that are, seek power because it works. The thing is I think it works better today than it has maybe. I don't I, I hate absolutes, but maybe any time in history because I don't think we've ever had a generation who's been as miserable and as spoiled at the same time. I, and I, I mean, I really feel that way. And I think you take COVID out. Like, COVID adds to the misery. I'm, I, but I'm saying if we had this conversation in 2018, I would still say that our, 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 our young generation, understand what I mean by that, is like teenagers up to like 40, in general are miserable. Now, I know there's plenty of people that are happy, but in general, as a demographic, they're freaking miserable. And if you're miserable and the fundamental ideas that have run society up till now are not responsible for that misery, guess who is? And humans fundamentally do not want to be responsible for their own misery. They want to believe there's some cause outside of my choices that's made me miserable. And I think that was also basically as predictable as baking a cake if you follow the recipe on the box, right? Like, So they built that generation in our educational institutions, and I use that term educational very loosely, um, over the last 30-ish years. And then they just added on to it, you know what, it's not your fault. It's their fault. It's James Madison's fault. That's, that's why you're miserable. Thomas Jefferson did it. Aristotle, great thinker of the past. Yeah, he's the reason that you're miserable. And Therefore, when you try to have a discussion about these things and you try to base anything about proposing an idea on anything that happened more than 35 seconds ago and was approved by whichever authority the appeal is to right now, it has to be wrong, it has to be racist, it has to be archaic, it has to be, you know, whatever the buzzword of the day, racist or sexist or xenophobic, it just immediately gets labeled like that rather than examined. And that makes the kind of conversations you want to have very, very difficult to have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it definitely does. I, I mean, I see it with people. I'm 25, so I see it with people my age that I'm like, we have so much opportunity to build for ourselves. We have so much access to knowledge. I mean, I have friends who do the whole thing where they dive into Wikipedia, but I'm like, you're just diving in on the silliest stuff. I mean, whatever, if it's, <laughs> whatever floats your boat. But I'm like, I don't know how much more you need to know about whatever it like weird historical event you're diving into. I get it. It's cool, but fine. But I feel like we don't tap into those, whether or not you're religious to, but even like Aristotle and the ancient Greeks had you know, the prime mover and had that understanding that there is an order to the world. And if I act within, in accord with that order that is laid out for me, 
then I can attain this sort of lasting happiness. And we kind of have replaced that sort of idea of doing what's right and meaningful and what's virtuous with doing what's expedient and, and pleasurable and is going to give me there, – there's no delayed gratification. We mm-hmm. Millennials aren't building a family, you know, because – Instead, they're, you know, partying it up or, and not all, not all, obviously. I'm 25 and married. So, I mean, there are people that I know who are like me who are settling down at what's relatively now a young age, but, um, they're, they're not trying, I don't see a lot of my friends trying to build that life forward. They're just kind of doing this thing where they live in the moment and it's, it's great, I guess, but I think that it doesn't last and no one's telling us that, that, Mm -mm. you know, you're, you want to find something that is actually meaningful, that actually helps you build something. And that's what I think why we're so sad and depressed as a generation or generations where young kids who have an entire beautiful life ahead of them are killing themselves like crazy or need to be medicated to do all these, to go about their daily lives. And I, I think it's very, very sad. And that's why, I mean, part of why I like to reach back into the, this wisdom is in reading the Tao Te Ching and reading Aristotle's ethics, even before I started to kind of, I was kind of a fallen away Catholic and I started to come back to my faith in a lot of ways through those books because I was like, oh, this is an actual logical argument for why we should live this way. And I did not get that growing up <laughs> in Catholic school. It was kind of a watered down bad version of that. But I think that there is something missing there that people need to tap into and fix. And I'm not quite sure how to do that other than present these ideas. I think that, you know, reading Crime and Punishment is a good way to restore that. When you see someone who lives in a meaningless world and all of a sudden thinks everything's meaningless, commits the perfect crime, and then their conscience haunts them, um, Mm. I think that that's the best way to describe what we have. We have a society that's turned its back on all of these principles that we know work, that are true, and our conscience kind of haunts us in a way that, and I don't know if people will kind of come back to um, an understanding of I'm meant to live a virtuous, good life, or if we're going to continue to put forward liberty not as you know, a balance of rights and responsibilities that I have due to the rights that I have, right? Versus a licentiousness that just is, I get to do whatever I want and have free reign because all that does is enslave you to whatever well, it is that you're getting into. The thing is, like, so that is, that, that's a pretty good summation of what it seems like people want today. I want to be able to do everything that I want to do and I want everybody else to be able to do it too. But here are what those things are. Right. So you have as long as you conform to this, this this progressive idealism, which is just modern Marxism, then, yes, you can do whatever you want. And it's more about what you say than what you do, because it's OK. Mm-hmm. It's OK to burn a building down if you're saying the right things while you do it. And it's, it's mm-hmm. not OK to burn a building down if you say the wrong, the wrong thing while you do it. It, it, it's almost a religious fervor that, that that it's done with. That what you pronounce is more important than the deed. Um, and it, it it amazes me, but I I also think you kind of hit on part of again why it's working so well is that I, I would just think that 
in my grandfather's generation. And so you're talking, you know, the men that fought World War II when they were 17 or 16 because they lied about their age. That that generation, right? Um, if they were happy, say, 60% of the time in their life, they were, you know, quote-unquote, living the dream. Like, holy crap, I am happy more often than I'm unhappy. I'm good. And I, it, it, I could be wrong. I'm a little bit older, of an older fart myself, but it feels to me today like many people are, if I'm ever unhappy, somebody owes me something. Not just that's not good enough. It's like somebody owes me something. Somebody should do something to make my unhappiness go away, and the only thing that I really know is it can't be me because surely if I could have done something to make myself happy, I would have. Which is absolutely asinine to me. I, I try to be open to other people's ideas, but I'm sorry, that's a human being who is never unhappy is, you know, even a person, like, I don't think anybody actually is that, but a person that feels like they're that way, they're kind of freaking creepy. I mean, you know what I mean? Like, the guy that never doesn't smile, like, you're kind of like, dude, like, you take a step back, like, hold, hold on. Like, we're supposed to have a range of emotions. It's healthy mm -hmm. for us sometimes to be unhappy. Death is a part of life. Therefore, at some point in your life, unless you die very, very, very young, somebody in your life that you care about will die, and you'll have to deal with it. There's no reason that you should be happy when that happens. right? You can mm -hmm. be at peace, but peace and happy are different. And like, I feel like that's all been completely convoluted, and I can't help but feel that it's intentional. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've definitely turned happiness, which like classically was not smiley, perky, like, hey, you know, I'm your like camp counselor kids like yeah, that yeah. guy. That's the guy who came to mind when you're describing that. Yeah, it's not. It's gonna be like, super fun. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, like it's not like walking into Disney World. That's not happiness generally. And you know, I think that really what happiness is supposed to be is that general peace with yourself that you're not getting. You know, obviously things are going to come by and upset you, right? If a loved one dies, if you know, something catastrophic happens and your house is burned down. Like, those are hard things. You're going to not be, like, happy in that moment. But the happiness that Aristotle talks about is this basically knowing that you're doing, living your life the right way and in accord with that. And and so that's really where happiness is supposed to be drawn on is contentment with the way you're going about your life. And it's more of... I think that the better word for it is joy because you can have joy in suffering and in all of those things. It's not – joy isn't a happiness. It's a fullness of life. It's a fullness of experience where you're living in a present moment. And I liked – I listened to something recently where they said the cool – the reason why you're supposed to live in the present is because if – depending on your theory of time, <laughs> if – You know, the present moment is that point where we are touching eternity. If time just continues to march on and eternity is all of time, you know, viewed at once, we're kind of moving along. And so our present moment is that tangent to that e to eternity. And so that the only place where we belong is living in the present. And so doing that in a way and making the most of every one of those moments, whether that's grieving when you're supposed to grieve, you know, uh, rejoicing when you're supposed to rejoice or learning when you're supposed to learn whatever that is doing when you're supposed to actually implement what you've learned when you're doing that properly that's when you're happy and you're living a joyful life and a meaningful life so how do we how do we have discussions like this like you and i 
fundamentally agree probably on more than we disagree. I guarantee you we can find things we disagree on. I, mm. I promise you. But since we fundamentally agree on a, a great deal of things, it's a pretty easy conversation to have. How do we get into these types of conversations? Because I bet you and I could have a great conversation about something we totally freaking disagree about. Mm-hmm. How do you have that when you don't have fundamentals? And I think maybe that's why they killed them, right? We don't have these fundamental principles that we can base ideas on, and we're in totally different camps. How do we have a constructive conversation with that person? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I did a episode on this uh, for my podcast a couple weeks ago, but I think that what we have to do is empathize with the other person and listen to the other person and show get like gain the other person's trust because you know I I listen to the survival podcast. And, you know, I think it's easy for me to come on here and talk to you knowing who you are and what you think. And I know that we can have a productive conversation. But if you're not sure about that with somebody, I think the best way is to ask questions about what someone believes. And, you know, maybe not dive in and start with, like, the worst, you know, like, let's not start on the abortion issue or something like that. Yeah, because, yeah. <laughs> you know, you don't need to start there, but just trying to get a like if if things you know if someone makes an offhand comment like people do about politics, it's like oh what do you think about that situation and and you can maybe talk about well I think that all those people who attacked the Capitol were wrong. Well, it's like okay yeah I, I agree, but you know violence is not the right thing. But what do you think about what's been going on all last year? Oh well, and you know those people were fine to be rioting, and yeah. now you can have a conversation about okay. Like, why is that? What What's the difference here? And I think that probing and getting – because what happens so much where people get defensive is your ideas get strawmanned. You you just have someone say, oh, that you're just being a liberal. You're just being a, you know, stodgy conservative. And most of the time you probably don't fit very well into either of those camps. And so instead of strawmanning the other person, it's – Understand them, repeat back to them, and steel man their argument, and say, okay, well, here's why I believe something different than you. Yeah. And instead of saying, here's why you're you're wrong, it's like, here, I've heard you out. Here's why I think differently. And I think that just changing the approach of how we present our ideas is a huge part because we've learned how to do the crossfire version of having political dialogues. And I think we have to get back to if you. I think the best way to learn is to read. Plato because you see how Socrates cross-examines and then builds an idea and has people ask him questions and I as much as I actually prefer to like hear an argument laid out as Aristotle does I like the way that Plato shows how those dialogues went on because learning from the Socratic method is a great way to be able to uncover someone's ideas present your own and then have a dialogue yeah I'll tell you I And I like doing that. I, I do think there's people at a state of mind where you can't, though. For instance, I, I recently observed a discussion on social media that I was my name was pulled into, and I was compared <laughs> to some other people, and then I was called a racist. And one of the other people in the discussion said, if, if you say this man's racist, you don't even know what racism means. And this person that said that knew me beyond my my public personality. They know me in real life, right? IRL. I know that one. Um, and this person responded with something that made me realize there would have been nothing I could say on my own behalf that would change this person's opinion of me. They said, well, he may not be a racist in the, just listen to this, in the way that he deals with people 
treats people or thinks about people. But he, he because I, I don't support BLM and say I'm not a racist, that makes me a racist. And when you get into that, and I, and, and, and that, ten years ago, my mind would have went into a loop of misery from that statement, not because I'm trying to defend myself, but because how the hell can you say that with, you know, and think it, and, and do it in text where you can read your own language and think it makes sense. And today I just go, nah, par for the course. And I guess in order to have conversations with people dis we disagree with that are willing to have a reasonable two-way conversation, you also have to be willing to recognize people that are not ready for it and not engage with those people. I mean, yeah, Jesus says, don't throw pearls to the swine. <laughs> I, that whole thing is if people are just, you know, not going to listen to you or not going to engage, then you can't. I mean, it, it is a two-way Yeah, I mean, you're not racist in the way you think about people, treat people, or, or act with people, but you're still a racist because you say you're not a racist. I mean, yeah. and when I think about it, that is the larger uh, argument about racism and white privilege today. That if you're a racist, you're a racist. If, you're, if you don't behave racistly but deny you're a racist, well, now you're really a racist. Mm -hmm. And yeah. like, if you want to be divisive, I, the only way to not be racist is to admit that you are racist Because we're all racist, and say you're racist, and be self-loathing, and then you're a racist, but you're okay. Mm -hmm. I, I, that kind of circular, weird logic that denies the people's point that made the greatest advances in in civil rights amazes me. Mm -hmm. I mean, I would yeah, think I, Mar like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, if he was still around today, would have said, "What? <laughs> What? Like, yeah. explain this." Like, I would love to have people like that actually engage in that discussion because I don't think I can. I don't think I can because obviously, of course, you say you're not a racist because, well, it's you, right? So it's, it's weird to me, and I guess we just have to get, like, I'm to the point now I'm not going to take that personally. Ten years ago, I would have took it very personally. Today I'm like, okay, well, since your opinion is based on, by your own admission, total nonsense, then it's, it's invalid and I don't care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I It's one of those things where you wonder if people would say those things to your face as well. <laughs> oh, I guarantee you they wouldn't. No, I know this guy. Like, yeah, no, no, uh-uh. <laughs> yeah, because I see things on Facebook and, like, you know, I, you know, it just – I know people who get upset because I know people who voted for Trump and then you have a friend who vote – who's saying, if you know, Trump supporters should get bashed in with the baseball bat and whether whatever you think of Trump. Or Biden, you know, I feel like either way that that goes, you have to remember that when you post a meme that's that terrible about the person who voted for somebody, that, you know, that might be your cousin or your friend. Or it, when you just post it out there into Facebook or Twitter, it's very easy to forget who you're actually talking about and the people that would be on the other end of it. But I think, too, as far as the racist thing and when people go to that point i just like cut off the conversation yeah i have people who you know my logo for the conversation of our generation kind of has like a weird little uh crisscross pattern and i kind of think it looks more like a cross but everyone who wants to call me a nazi says it looks like a swastika of course it does and so when you have two <laughs> sticks that cross at any point clearly that's a swastika yeah well it kind of has like a i don't know how to explain it but it's yeah it's definitely you know But everyone has to point there, and I'm like, okay, well, that person's just – that we can ignore that mention because they're not willing to have a conversation. But I think 
it's tough and I think it's easier to do it in person because people are not going to say those like that go to take the conversation at that point a lot of times in to your face yeah but or even like like this over a call like I I still don't think people have the guts most of the time to call someone a racist <laughs> like this either so oh, no. I think that's I, I think it's tougher there it's a lot easier to write it send it and forget it and so that's one thing that can help. But I do think, too, just understanding, because I think a lot of people who talk about those ideas, uh, there's a great book by Roger Scruton, Fools, Frauds, and Firebrands, that details how the evolution of Marxist thought. And I don't think some people who are purporting some of these ideas understand what kind of axioms and what kind of assumptions go into the conclusion that they have that if you know you can not act racist, think racist thoughts, or any of those things, like be totally clean as a driven snow from racism but you're still racist because you don't support this thing and that is 100 percent marxist tactics being used and people not even realizing what's happening in the background yeah i mean i mean honestly and it it i i think that the term black lives matter was set up to be divisive but if black lives matter was a civil rights organization that was carrying the message that we should peacefully protest and we should work hard to make sure that all people in our country or in the world are treated with equality, I'd be a fan. Mm -hmm. I'd be a fan. Yeah. And I'm willing to admit there are places in our country specifically that I feel at an institutional level, like you have a point. That black people have been treated unfairly. When I look at our criminal justice system, it's not across the board, but boy, I can pull out a shitload of instances. And if I was some poor black kid that had a brother that was in prison for 20 years and there was a white kid down the street that did the same thing and went to prison for five, I'd be freaking pissed. And I'd, mm -hmm. I'd feel I was freaking targeted. But my, my argument would not be we should punish white people. For this, right? Or that white guy should go to prison for 20 years too. My argument would be, well, clearly one is more just than the other. Why don't we figure out what that is and apply justice equally? Mm -hmm. Right? That, that would be, a, and the fact that that argument is so universal. And I believe that there are, uh, there are flat out morons and there are flat out racists in our society today. I, I still believe they're minority. I think if you want to win over the majority, that that is an incredibly successful formula right there to do it. I think as soon as you say, look, we need equality, not blame one side, most people are like, of course we do. And mm. it, it, it feels to me very much contrived that these a lot of these people in these organizations don't even realize what they're doing. I, it, it makes me think of Illuminatus Trilogy, uh, Robert Shea and Robert Anton Wilson's work, of how all these... And it's, it's amazing because this book was written in, I think, the 70s, right? And it was kind of very trippy 60s-ish in its, its, its storyline. And yet it sounds like today where all these organizations are fighting each other, and there's a few people at the very top, of course, there it's the Illuminati, call them what you want to, right, mm -hmm. that are actually using all of them to further their own agenda. And the two you know organizations that think they're most at odds are actually the most effective in advancing the agenda. But one, but if there was only one of them, it wouldn't work. You have to have both of them. It's the two foot, you know, two foot one in front of the other type situation where it's ratcheting the agenda forward. And, and it just feels like that's where we live today. We live in that book right now, which is freaking crazy.
And it's, it's more accurate describing where we are today than 1984 was. 1984, everybody talks about being eerie and whatever. A lot of those people say that, never read it, by the way. Um, and don't know that the author was a socialist, by yeah. the way, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, which leaves you open in a debate. Because we're like, well, 1984, did you know he was a socialist? No, he wasn't. Well, now you've lost the argument before you started, right? Because you're mm -hmm. uninformed. And it seems like you come to arguments today where both sides are equally uninformed, but equally assured that they're right. Mm -hmm. Yep, 100%. Yeah, that, yeah, George Orwell, he kind of, he didn't, because there was a lot of infighting at the time between sort of your communist socialists, or, like you had like the democratic socialists, I don't know, like the your England Labor Party kind of socialist. England Labor like, Party of 1965, right? Yeah, yeah. like yeah. That, that kind of thing. That's where he was coming from, and they hated the Nazis, and they didn't like the communists, and all <laughs> of those three factions hate each other. Just like, yeah. I mean, you know, I don't think it's very much different today where, you know, although they all like to claim each other's successes while they last, you know, and then when it tanks, they blame, blame the other guy. We haven't tried real socialism it. yet. <laughs> Have you seen exactly. the meme where it's like a, a stack of skulls, and, and the one skull is saying, we haven't tried real socialism yet, and some are way in the back, one of the other skulls is like, shut up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. That That's what it is. It's like, oh yeah, that's real socialism, while Venezuela is still being able to coast off their oil money, and then as soon as that you know goes under, it's like, oh... No, that was that that was just not real socialism all of a sudden. Yeah. It was great. But, it was a shining light, a shining example, I believe is what um Bernie Sanders called it. Of mm -hmm. what we should aspire to. Yeah, for like the eight years yeah. while they could while make it, it work. While, yeah. while oil prices were through the roof. <laughs> yeah, you run out of other people's money. That's always the problem with socialism. Um you know, we really always need to push dialogue toward truth and be willing to fact check things without claiming, you know, the silence, science is settled or everybody knows that. Like, generally when somebody says everybody knows that, that thing is tends to not be true. There are some things that everybody knows. The sun will come up in the morning, things like that. But in general, when people are trying to make arguments based on that, they don't know what they're talking about. And then we have this thing today that I find really detrimental to having any kind of good conversation, and that is this concept of you need to tell your truth. Yeah. Right, And I think that from a standpoint of vision or belief or many things like that that are kind of etherical, yes, there can be your truth. But when it comes to fundamental reality, there is not your truth and my truth. There are our opinions, and then there is the truth. You know, this thing mm -hmm. is or is not made out of iron. There's no, like, but I don't feel like it's iron. Okay, that's not really relevant to whether this is a ferrous or non-ferrous metal. Like, that's, 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 and, and we've gotten to a point where we're being so subjective with that kind of mindset that we get into this, well, there's 18 genders or however many there are today. I don't know. And you're like, yeah, no. Um, there, there, there is male, there is female, and there is hermaphroditic, right? There is a such thing as a hermaphrodite. That's... That's a biological curiosity that we don't really understand that happens sometimes. Mm -hmm. But that's it. Like, and if if you deny that and try to work an electrical plug because you don't like the term male and female, you know, you're not going either either power's not coming on or you're going to electrocute yourself. One way or another, there are fundamental truths, and those fundamental truths, when we deny them, 
it's almost, again, we're back to where, how can you have, and I, I think, honestly, and this is what I told my, my brother-in-law, the cop, about all this crap to do with law enforcement and what's going on with BLM today before it happened. There, there are problems in law enforcement. I respect you as a man, but there are problems. You guys deny it. This conversation needs to happen. And if we don't have this conversation and we're not truthful in this conversation now, Within the next few years, it's going to be an explosion. And I think people in charge want an explosion, and they're doing everything they can to make sure that conversation cannot happen. But the one people that can change it is not the people on the other side. It's you guys being honest, and you won't do it. And he rolled his eyes. And today, when, like when all the shit went down with George Floyd, he said, well, it wouldn't have mattered. Right? And I'm yeah. like, okay, well, who could have changed it? Who, who had more power to change that conversation by speaking the truth than police officers? Nobody. But they didn't do it, and they didn't do it. Why? To me, they didn't do it because look at the few that tried and what happened to them. Do you remember there was a video of it was a Miami-Dade County police officer, female, and this cop, I think he was a statey, was routinely driving at speeds over 130 miles an hour in his personal vehicle. And she knew who he was, and she got tired of his shit, and she pulled him over and arrested him for it. Mm -hmm. Her life was nearly destroyed by cops. She was doxxed to departments across the country and harassed until she resigned by police officers. Mm -hmm. Now, to me, again, we're, and I don't believe that cops necessarily just do that on their own. I think that there's someone at the institutional level in charge of these things. They want these conflicts. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a lot like uh, what Alexander Solzhenitsyn talks about in the Gulag Archipelago, which I'm going based off what I've not read it yet, um, what Jordan Peterson talks about in it, that what he realizes is that everyone tells themselves these little lies and they don't speak the truth in these little instances when they can a lot of times across the entire population. And then all of a sudden lies are able to set in and take over. If each person is – you don't – and there's also a difference, too, between being honest and truthful. Being honest, you could be honestly wrong, right? I could honestly yeah. think that the sun is actually moving in the sky because I see it that way. You know, that's phenomenologically how it works. But really, we're moving around. We're, you know, we're rotating and moving around the sun. Okay, I can be honest in saying I think that that's the case, but be wrong. But I think what we have to re recognize is that if we enter discussions, having trying to get at truth, trying to moving more and more towards i picture truth a lot as an asymptote that if you can picture sort of your exponential function going all the way up you can never attain perfect truth because you can never know the infinite amount of things that are happening at the present moment right all across the universe we can't know everything but you know we can't know all the amounts of th all the thoughts of the billions and billions of people right now every moment of the day but we can continue to move more and more towards that asymptote and gain more and more truth for ourselves and as a, as a society, as a whole. And that's how I think we should order our discussions toward. Like, that's what we should be striving for, is how can you and I come together and learn from each other, exchange ideas, and maybe discover new ideas together by having a conversation? And that's what I really try to do with my work and with what I put forward, because I think that's really how... 
that's really how we fix a lot of things. And even at the, you know, the things that I think we have trouble with, like you talked about with, um, that's my truth or this is my truth is we have a fundamental misunderstanding of how we relate to the world around us. And this is not a new concept. There, there were ancient Greek philosophers who had this idea as well that, you know, it's our perceptions either maybe can't be trusted at all or our perceptions are always right. You know, there's a, it's a tough thing to fully understand how that works, but there is a sense that we have a subjective experience of the world, right? Something might impact me differently. I might find something entertaining or funny that you don't find funny and entertaining, mm. right? We can inter we can see the same thing and take away different uh, have a different perspective on it. But if we can't agree on you know what that thing is that we just saw happen, right? If if we just saw a car wreck and you know we can't agree that this happened and then that truck hit this car from this side. You know, we might have different viewpoints from a, you know, from the window, right? We might, you might be across the street from me. And so it might look a little different when we describe it because you have a, you know, you're seeing it hit from the left and I'm across the street seeing it hit from the right. You know, that can happen. We can, and you yeah, can that's, a, it's, it's, that's actual perception bias, right? So there's mm-hmm. perception bias. It's based on like all the things I carry with me and then I witness a thing and I decide that it is a certain thing because of the baggage I carry. But then there's generalized perception bias, like you were talking about with a car wreck. The way I see those two vehicles come together, I may be like, the guy in the red truck was totally at fault. Well, maybe you're on a different angle. I didn't see that the guy in the blue car ran flat through a red light. Mm-hmm. Right? I just don't even know the red light was there. And we might argue, and then somebody would have to actually, but here's the interesting thing, right? So we, I would be absolutely convinced that bastard in the red truck is a responsibility for this. And you're like, no, it's a dude in the blue car. But if we actually sat down and really went through everything, and you said, look, dude, there's the light right there. He ran that light. Even if I didn't immediately say, okay, it's his fault, I would say, well, if, if he ran the red light as you claim, then you're right, it is his fault, or at mm-hmm. least he's, He's at least somewhat at fault because, and you might actually find that he did run the light, but since the accident happened after the intersection, maybe the guy that I said was at fault actually was partially at fault as well. Maybe it's a mutual fault. Mm -hmm. We'll never have that understanding if we don't have that conversation. Exactly. And, And that's how you get closer and closer to what really happened in that case. And that's how we do it in every aspect, right? Even, you know, the sort of philosophical proofs of you know that of god's existence or of all these different things that we have of why we'd have certain rights for instance you know those sorts of lot philosophical proofs that we have that are run through with logic if this and this you know a is true and b is true then you put that together and therefore c is true right those sorts of things come about more when we have those dialogues ordered towards truth and are trying to do the best we can to shed any biases that we have, but also explaining and understanding the other person's perspective. Because I think that it's important to take into account the fact that each of us does have a subjective experience of the world. And so we bring that with us to a conversation and 
it's fine to in, indulge that, but we just can't make it be whatever I feel is true. You know, maybe what I see is true, right? But maybe I'm seeing something wrong. But whatever I feel is objectively happening to me. That's a real. But that may not be in accord with what's actually true. As well. I don't know. That's no, I, I, you're making a lot of sense. And, I mean, if you just go back to the car analogy, the red truck and the blue car, what if the guy in the blue car was your best friend and the guy in the red truck was my best friend? And what if they were both hurt really bad? It would be far more difficult for us to have that conversation, right? And to and to if we were the only two witnesses, and here and then you know Tommy's a cop and Tommy has to ferret this out. It would be very difficult even for that third party who wants to find the truth to find the truth. And then we may all sit back and go, "That can't be right." If there was a traffic camera and we can watch it happen with full and total visibility of what happened. Like, I've seen where people, like, you literally show them, here's this thing happening. No. But, but, mm -hmm. I, and you, you don't know what to say at that point other than, but, but there it is. Mm -hmm. that, that's what actually, or you see these things where, I'll beat up on cops, but I've also seen things where it looks like a cop for no reason at all, like just beat the shit out of somebody. And then you see the 60 seconds prior to the part that they showed you <laughs> where the guy pulled out a knife and said, I'm going to cut your guts out or something. And you're like, eh, you know, if somebody pulled a gun. Because I was, this is always what I say about, you know, what the cops dealing with. If you add it to the fact that I'm required to detain this person, if they did, if, if that person did to me what they did to the cop, how would I have responded? And if you pull a knife out and say you're going to cut my guts out, I consider it a lethal threat. I, yeah. I, I'm honestly probably going to be far more harsh than the cop. I'm going to pull my gun and shoot your ass if I think you're capable of doing what you said you're going to do. Mm -hmm. And you know what the law will say? In Texas, anyway, okay. Right? Mm -hmm. He brought a knife to a gunfight. Yeah, to talk about the toller drill all you want, but that <laughs> generally doesn't work out well. It didn't here. This didn't have to happen, but this individual caused it to happen. But again... If you happen to be the judge and the guy that I shot is your brother, you know you need to you need to recuse yourself. And I think there's some issues that we're that judge. We're mm -hmm. too close to be the one having the conversation. Like I think that's where it's very beneficial to bring in very informed people with as little emotional attachment as possible, but they have their their cases and let them debate. Like I love that type of structured debate. You know, if it's more like the second presidential debate than the first one this year, right? <laughs> like, if you have that second one where people actually, and it was still pretty poor, but it was better. But I've, I've listened to debates between, let's say, an atheist and a creationist. And I found it very engaging mentally to, to listen to that debate, especially when both of them are coming to it from, let's present evidence. I mean, I find that, and it's just about any subject that I find interesting. And, and I find that in those debates often... I may not completely change my mind. I tend not to form an opinion without information, but I may change it somewhat because, well, I never, never, never thought about it that way. And I'm a strong debater, so if I was the one in the debate, I might leave without without gaining that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 100. percent Now I think that I've listened to a few debates and podcasts recently, and it's really good to get like both sides of an argument. I, I think I did listen to a creationist one, but it was creationist versus non-creationist and it was it's interesting to hear those and hear that back and forth or the on the existence of god and hear people who are really steel manning each other's arguments and addressing the toughest challenges uh that someone poses to your view and how they handle that 
And especially when it's structured and it's like you have five minutes to present your case and then we're going to have rebuttals. I think that having a good moderator really helps, which is why our presidential debates generally don't go well. No, we no. generally have a bad moderator. <laughs> generally, I think the idea they had for the, the second debate should be done in all political debates. You get oh, your yeah. time and then your microphone just shuts off. Right? It just shuts off. You, no, that's your time. Because that, and the and people say, well, that's not fair. No, that's those, when you do a structured debate, like I, I've debated in professional settings, right? The, there is an agreement to the structure mm -hmm. in advance. If you get 60 seconds of rebuttal, you agreed to that before you took on the debate, and you should stick to it, and if we can make you stick to it by enforcing the rule that you agreed to, I'm all for it, right? Yep. And I'm, I'm for it when it doesn't benefit my side. That's that's the important part. Like that's, And I think that's what we where we've gotten to where these conversations are so difficult. People are for anything that benefits their side mm -hmm. and opposed to everything that benefits the opposition, no matter what. And, and you take and you give the same scenario and change the mouthpiece and the opinion changes. So there was a guy recently that took when Maxine Waters went kind of nuts and, you know, was getting their faces and yell at him. He took her exact quote, did an anonymous tweet, and instead of making it about the Trump administration, made it about Governor Cuomo. And mm -hmm. the left lost their collective minds. They lost their collective minds because it was in opposition versus support of their viewpoint. And to me, when you get there, you've denounced reason, right? I mean, what was, was it Socrates that said that, you know, it's like administering medicine to the dead? Or was it Hippocrates? I don't remember, mm -hmm. right? right? Like to, 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 to argue with somebody that's denounced reason is like administering medicine to the dead. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's it's ridiculous. I, I don't fully know how to go about fixing some of those things, but it's – I think people just have to choose, and that's where I make the argument is each of us – if each of us chooses to engage in that kind of hyper-partisan way, then it's going to fuel itself. But if we start to press the brakes on that and moment by moment, conversation by conversation, tone that down and actually try to focus on – how we find truth, then, you know, uh, Confucius said that the superior man is Catholic, not partisan. It, and that's lower C. Obviously, he was mm -hmm. writing this before the Catholic Church. Um, because, you know, what he means is this, the superior man is the one who looks at something as from the whole picture, right, of the whole. And this, the inferior man is the one who looks at it from their partisan per, uh, perspective. And I think that that's how I try to approach things. Even if I fall in agreement with a partisan side, the partisans are going to be right sometimes, right? They, that's part of, you know, broken clocks, right, can be right twice a day. So you're going to fall into agreement with people who are hyper-partisans. But if you're not a partisan yourself, I think you're going to be much better off as far as finding the truth and living in the truth. How do you feel about the division between sophistry and philosophy? And for people that may not be familiar with that, sophistry is like, it's a, it, the argument sounds plausible. 
but it's wrong. So it's amazing to me if you actually sit down and watch like one of, and it's hard to do because your brain hurts. But like the 60-minute, you know, 9/11 style videos on why the Earth is actually flat. The arguments made have the facade of logic around them, and you can see why some people would begin to believe them. When we go to the world of philosophy, we're not in the world of fact. And yet it's still different because philosophy is more a way of viewing things, a way of seeing things, a way of a, a personal way by which you approach life. So neither are factually based. But what's the real difference then? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for me, the way I look at it is sophistry is trying to win an argument, right? That's where politicians are trying to prove the other wrong and undermine the other person and prove their point of view right. And it's using rhetoric and fancy language in order to confuse sometimes points where you might be wrong, like muddle that, but then make clear where you might be right. And to be deceptive in how you talk, because, you know, deception is not necessarily lying. Deception can be telling the truth in a way that misleads somebody. And philosophy is about putting truth at the center of your conversation and at the same time walking through logically and like you said philosophy doesn't necessarily have you, you can pull from facts and say okay you know socrates is a man all men are mortal therefore socrates is mortal right sure. that's your basic syllogism you can use facts that then you can abstract from but a lot of times what you're doing is you're pulling out you know that If you're doing that, you're taking an instance or a fact and abstracting out a principle from that. And now you have to make sure that your syllogism holds, that your analogies make sense, and that, and also that you don't over, you don't push those too far and try to overprove your point because that's what philosophy is. It's the love of knowledge, the love of wisdom. And so when you love something, you're doing it out of the best, you're, putting it up on a pedestal and trying to do it for the sake of wisdom, not for sake of yourself. And that's where I think the difference comes in. And I see a lot of sophistry. If you want to know the basic difference, it's, you know, Joe Rogan's podcast, I would say, is or even the survival podcast and these podcasts that are really trying to get at truth, that's more your philosophy. Your CNN and your cable <laughs> news of any sort, yeah. that's where you find your sophistry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. A couple things there. Number one is that You've actually identified a pretty big problem with our political system since it's built on sophistry, right? Imagine that you're, uh, I, I hate to even pick a side, but Democrat. I just flipped a coin and looked at it to figure out, because it wouldn't matter if I swapped it. And mm -hmm. you have been on one side of an issue for a very long time. Doesn't matter what it is. You decide you're going to really prove it and make it a key cornerstone of your campaign. And this is an issue that is generally and broadly supported on your side by your political side of the equation. This is, this is a mainline issue. It's not something way down at the bottom that no one will notice if you flip on it. And you do enough research and you figure out, hey, you know what? <laughs> I haven't changed my philosophy as a Democrat. I still believe in the overwrite, but I was totally effing wrong about this. You cannot come out and say that without committing political suicide 
And it's less voters and more your own party that will slaughter you. And this is another one of the perfect analogies to like, you know, 1980s WWF wrestling. The only way that the wrestler who cheated could stop cheating was to switch sides, right? That's how it works. Like the person that comes to that epiphany inside politics, the only way they can come out with that switch without being destroyed by their own, eaten by their own, is to switch. If the other side will even have them, which many times they will and many times they won't. Because that person hasn't switched on all of their principles. They've switched on one. And and so mm-hmm. if you have a political system that's built on sophistry, it's incapable of evolving. All you have is either one side or the other wins. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I think that we haven't – basically it's been set on that – you know. On sophistry since pretty Ever? much right after I would say its inception. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean I think that Adams and Jefferson, right? I mean Adams yeah. and Jefferson. I mean, like, good lord, their campaign made what goes on today look like a freaking day at Disney. <laughs> exactly. I think that when they were out there trying to set up the Constitution, I think that if you look at the Federalist Papers, you have really good arguments being made and very interesting ones. But when you get to yeah, people who those guys who were having those conversations 20 years ago running against each other, I mean, they're brutal. And and it wasn't really about the ideas and getting at truth. It was definitely about undermining the other person. Yeah, yeah with intimate knowledge of how the other person thought and, and what they had said and how you could use it against them, mm-hmm. right? So instead of, you know, raking their Twitter feed, they had actually sat and, and, and like, made mental notes. Like, not with the intention of, at, but, oh, I remember when. Like, once it became a power struggle... Now, to me, on the other side, philosophy, philosophy as a, as a thing comes with its own built-in humility. So if mm-hmm. you're a philosopher, then by your very nature, even if you have a dominant philosophy, say Stoicism or whatever, right, that you embrace, that if you're truly a philosopher to me, then you can take all these different philosophies and all these different schools of thought and analyze the same issue With that different philosophy, how would we approach this as uh, if, through postmodernism? How you, you see what I'm saying? Like you, 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 you have mm-hmm. to be able to, by by its very nature, take that approach. Philosophy is not a religion, right? You don't become like I, uh, you know, pledge my my faith and allegiance to Socrates, right? It's that, that's not how philosophy works. It it requires that you realize I'm viewing this through a specific lens. To better understand it, because that's the entire point. That's the entire way at which we're approaching this. To me, it's a lot like I've been a judge uh, in, let's say, a competition for wines. And if mm. I'm drinking Moscato, because that's what I'm judging, and I think it all tastes like phlegm, like sweet phlegm, and I, I think that Moscato is a horrible grape that should be torn from the earth and, and burned in a fire... If I've agreed to serve as that judge, then I must judge all this terrible Moscato they put in front of me is how well does it fit the style that is Moscato? And mm-hmm. I have to pull myself out of my personal contempt for a grape that should not exist, and I have to judge it for what it is. And that's what philosophy's like. Like if I'm approaching this, and I think you learn. I think it's one of the few things you do still learn in, in universities when you go into you know classes on philosophy. How would I analyze this as? 
if that mm -hmm. makes sense. It's like, the, like looking at design from an architectural lens versus a permaculture lens. Mm -hmm. Both sides exactly. have points, right? Both sides have points. Yep. Yeah, it's a tool. It's like, am I going to use calculus for this problem, or I could maybe use algebra for this problem? I mean, it's philosophy is a lot like mathematics in the sense that it's, okay, let's walk through and solve this equation here and get from point A to point B with a line of logic that holds. And you could do that from different schools. And, and really, a lot of times, a lot of the schools come to similar agreements. They just do it different ways, um, or they might emphasize different things. And, some, and th that's the other thing is, You know, you just have to know what you're starting with as your basis. You know, what what values are greater or lesser, and you know the Stoic values things differently than the postmodernist does. And but then from there, you can understand how they get to their conclusions because you can walk through their lines of logic. Although the postmodernist, I think it's very tough. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a little yeah. convoluted. It's a little it's a little iffy and shaky. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the, the world of Thaddeus Russell, right? Like, yeah. Um, who I actually admire, by the way. But, yeah, I mean, there's times when you're like, okay, so nothing is real. And everything <laughs> is real at the same time. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And we can't be sure of anything, but we can be sure of something. Maybe. Exactly. Possibly. We, right? We can be sure of that. <laughs> but if you can actually say, okay, that is, like, if you pick the most alien philosophy to your logic, And you can understand it enough to use it like you would understand how to use, like, I much prefer my 20-volt-the-wall skill saw to a freaking handsaw to rip a board with, right? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But if, but I can also appreciate the guy that invented the skill saw a lot more if I've used the rip saw to rip a board. Like, mm -hmm. way more. Like, oh, wow. Like, this guy should have got a Nobel Prize. Come on, right? And like so when we when we take those exercises, if we're having the conversation that's, you know, difficult with a person and we can identify where they're coming from and analyze it from their vantage point, not only can we seek better to understand them, but I actually think we can present them a better argument where we believe that they're wrong. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep, I agree with that 100%. I mean, I try to do it with vegans all the time, right? It's hard, but I try. Like, because when they start making the argument about CAFOs and, you know, environmental damage due to them and, you know, feeding cows corn and, like, we don't disagree on anything. Mm -hmm. But then when you, like, so you're concerned about the environment. Absolutely. Okay, so then you believe that carbon needs to go in the soil. Yeah. Okay, great. Now we're, we're, we're going somewhere together, right? Okay, so do you understand that the ecosystem, that's if we take out mangroves, so we're not doing marine, we're going terrestrial ecosystems, which is the place we have the most control over, the thing that gets the most carbon in the soil is savanna systems. You could even get, oh yeah, okay. So how can we maintain a savanna system without animals? And then it goes to shit, right? Like, oh, well, yeah. like you, you've lost, even though you've tried that approach, you've lost the argument in, from a standpoint of not you're wrong. But to me, when you can't complete the conversation and have each side come away with it with a better understanding of the other, you've lost the argument because you've done something that there was no point to. You've mm -hmm. now expended energy on it and That's why I think, you know, you talk about not casting your pearls along the line. There's points where you go, I've seen this before. 
I know what I'm dealing with. I'm going to take what I can contribute elsewhere because this is going to be as effective as me trying to sweep the beach, right? I mean, that's like that's what I'm going to do. I'm sweeping the beach, man. You know, like it'll the sand will be gone someday. You know, that's how you feel sometimes. Yep. Yeah, I like that. I'm going to have to steal that one. Sweeping the beach. I've never heard sweep the beach. <laughs> <laughs> there was a, a little gif, and it was some guy, as I guess it's a joke, with a push broom. And every time the water, you know, like the water, water's really shallow in the beach, he was like pushing the, the water back out to sea. And then it would come in, and he would do it again. And somebody put underneath the yeah. government attempting to ban Bitcoin. <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Um, What do you do when a conversation goes south? And you just, when you get to that point where you're like, hey, I think this is a lost cause. Mm -hmm. For me, I just kind of say, yeah, all right, I guess we're just going to have to agree to disagree. We, there's nowhere to take this. If we're going to go to this point, you know, if someone starts throwing ad hominem or is just not engaging with my points and just keeps, you know, but you haven't thought about this, you haven't addressed this, and it's like saying the same thing over and over. Yeah. Um, when you've addressed it multiple times, I just think it's just time to say, okay, especially on Twitter, it's very easy. Just stop replying. Just <laughs> let it be. Yeah. Just, you yeah. have this feeling like I need to answer this person and get the last word in, but you're never going to do it. No. And so just get out of the comment section, get out of the replies and just leave it be. If it's in person, just be like, hey, so anyways, Super Bowl is this Sunday, right? Yeah. And talk football, talk, you know, whatever it is that's off that topic, um, you know, I think that that's just the best way because really in the end, you're not going to convince somebody most of the time in one conversation, A. And B, I think the biggest thing is to continue to have a relationship with someone. If you actually know this person and you're having a disagreement face-to-face, -face, the important thing is to – you don't want to throw away a friendship over something, no. over a political discussion. I think that that's silly. So if it starts to get heated and it gets to the point where it's like, okay, we're going to start hurting feelings, then just – Talk about something else. Get out of that conversation. You don't need to, you know, continue to beat the dead horse on that. You know what I've noticed, and I think it has a lot to do now. It's more the case because I'm a public personality, right? Mm -hmm. um, getting to that point and having that person not want the debate to end and literally beg you to continue to engage in the debate. So you're walking away from the debate and they're like, no, we need to talk, but no, we don't. Right, and it, it, it's it's an odd behavior to me, and I, I don't think it happened. Is if you would have asked me five years ago and I hadn't really examined that thought, I think I would have said, yeah, that always happened because what's happening now feels like it's always. But when I when I look back with a little more context on it, I don't think that ever happened to me. Like when my buddies and I were debating some shit when I was you know like 22 years old in a bar with them, mm -hmm. and we got to a point where like. I'm not going to agree with you. You're not going to agree with me. Like, they might have pulled one more time, but then it was done. Like, yeah, yeah let's talk about the, the game coming up and why your team sucks, right? Because <laughs> that we'll agree about, you know. Um, <laughs> they would let it go. But it seems, and I'm even in real life talking about, like, I was at one place where I was an instructor for uh, a permaculture thing, and a, and a guy wanted to debate global warming. And two days into it, I'm like, I can't do this anymore. And he wouldn't yeah. let it go. Look, man, I know you've got to wrap up pretty soon, so why don't you tell people how they can learn more about what you do and some of the resources you have? For sure. Um, if you want to find out more, you can head to conversationofourgeneration.com to see the articles and everything there. Um, my podcast is Conversation of Our Generation. You can find that on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, anywhere that you find podcasts. And I recently wrote a book, so 
and trying to solve problems of today with the wisdom of the past. I have a little book about property rights in the digital age, where they come from, what kind of brought us to this point with property rights, and when, you know, your, and I think it'll be relevant for people in your community as well, like, when you're, when you're no longer putting your money in a safe, <laughs> and yeah. it's in your phone, you know, how do we start to think about property rights and build institutions, which are not a bad word, you know, your ways, how do we build security and in institutions and think about uh, bulwarking property rights and maybe even expanding our ability to actually preserve our property rights, um, maybe in political action, but mostly through innovation, technology, and those sorts of things. Well, Nick, you've did a good job on your guest app that I wish all uh, guests would do with all of your resources in there. So I shall make sure that they are in the show notes today. And I know you got to go, so I'll let you go. But I want you to know you have an open invitation to come back anytime. Hey, I appreciate it, Jack. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I definitely recommend you guys check out uh, his podcast and blog. He's a really awesome dude. And uh, to be where he is mentally at 25 in 2021 uh, is impressive. I don't know if that would have been as impressive back in, in the time of some of the people we were talking about today. What people had done by the time they were 25 a few hundred years ago is uh, – It, it kind of makes, even if you're successful, it makes you look at your life and go, gee, really, is this all I've done? Uh, but today, in our day and age, a guy at 25 being where this kid is is pretty freaking amazing. I can't believe I just called 25-year-old kid. You know, when, you're, when your son is 31, 25 is a kid. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed it. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you, you can help support the show and the work we do just by doing your online shopping at a little website tspaz.com, which is just part of the survivalpodcast.com. It's a real easy, quick way to get there. It's easy to remember, tspaz, T-S-P-A-Z.com. Go there. No matter what you buy, you can help support the show and the work that we do. Today's item of the day is the Anchor Soundcore Life P2 True Earbud Wireless uh, Earbuds. Um, these things are awesome. These things are awesome. First of all, they look a lot like the Apple iPod, EarPods, whatever you call them, AirPods, right? Except they're black instead of white, so they don't make you, when somebody's wearing them, think, you, think about a scene from something about Mary. I'll just leave it at that. Um, but they work as good or better than AirPods, and they cost a fraction of AirPods. AirPods are generally about $128 bucks to $150 bucks for the base model. These are $50 bucks day in, day out, already a deal. They're on sale today for $33.99. You can't get a couple beers and a good plate of food for that. And these are awesome, high-quality earbuds. They're great for consumption, as in listening, and they're great for production, as in talking. Uh, they have just exceptional quality. I will put it this way. If you don't have something for this, and you want something for this, and you buy AirPods or a similar product or Beats or some shit like that, You're either a complete audiophile snob if you're buying like Beats or something. And I, that's one of those things where people are like, see how much better the quality is? And I'm like, no, I really don't. Um, and I, I guess if you're like a sommelier of music, maybe. Uh, but otherwise, I'd say you hate money. You just hate money. You just like, like, you know, just send me your 120 bucks. Go ahead, right? Because you hate money. You're throwing money away is how I feel about it. Um, they're on sale right now in a limited time deal, whatever that means, because that means various things on Amazon, $33.99. And then the other thing, and you can find this in the write-up today, pretty much half of what Anchor makes, not 100%, but about half of what Anchor makes is on sale on these limited time deals at stupid cheap prices. Anchor does this every once in a while. 
And so there's a ton of cool stuff. Just a little shout-out to Anchor. I have sold thousands of Anchor items from charging cables to battery backup units to earphones to earplugs, all of it. I mean, just tons of stuff. If I pull up an annual report on my sales out of my affiliate thing, it's like Anchor, 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 Anchor. It's 2021. This is kind of a discount electronics line. In other words, they sell a premium product for less than a premium competitor. To get that many sales, and I've had nobody say, hey, I bought this thing as a piece of shit, and Anchor didn't take care of it. Not one. It's Even as much as I love them, I find it surprising. It makes it easy to recommend them. Um, I've had one bad product come from Anchor in all the stuff that I've, I've, I've bought, and it was a... I bought like a set of cables, and one of them, it didn't even not work. It didn't work consistently, and I knew it wouldn't last. Like you'd have to jiggle it to get it to phone to charge. And I, I, I got in contact with customer service. They didn't send me a cable. They sent me a whole new set, and they didn't even ask me. They said, keep the ones you got. We're sorry. That's a hell of a thing in 2021. It shouldn't be, but it is. So when you need electronics, always check and see what Anchor has. If, it, if they have it, it's quality or they won't. Uh, and remember, you can always support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. So I want to wrap up with our song of the day, but also just real quick, as I think here at the end, I want to remind you guys, Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Central Standard Time, I am going to drop a link into the Telegram channel. So it will be in the Telegram channel and group, because they, they're linked now. And it will say, if you want to sign up for the TSP Spring Workshop, Click this link and sign up and make your deposit. I am taking 30 students. It's one of the smallest numbers I've ever taken before. At a time when more and more people want to go do things, we sold out 65 seats in 10 minutes for the fall. If you don't get Telegram installed, if you're not awake, alert, and paying attention at 9 a.m., you might as well forget about coming. I'm just going to I mean, I could be wrong, but I would play it that way if I were you, if you want to come. This is going to be an awesome one. I've got two great builds we're doing, plus classes, plus great food and great fun as always. And uh, the two builds, I now have walkthrough videos on the website. I'll be an email that will go out today. Uh, it'll go out on Telegram and all that stuff, too. I already did that, by the way, um, where you can see exactly what we're doing. But if you want to come, just don't forget it. Also, remember, you can join the MSB and support this show. You use it. You get the discounts. You put the money back in your pocket. You support me, and it doesn't cost you nothing. That's the value proposition I put together with MSB. All right, with that, let's talk about our song of the day. This is an interesting one, and it's one of those ones where I'm, I'm, I'm glad I have John Adam doing this stuff because I would have never picked this song out. I had never even heard of it before. It's by George Harrison, also known as The Quiet Beetle. Um, it's called The Ballad of Sir Frankie Crisp. And I was like, I don't know about this, man, until I looked up the story behind it. It just sounded kind of funny. The song was inspired by the English lawyer, Sir Frank Crisp, who was around with us from 1843 to 1919. He was the original owner of Friar Park, which Harrison purchased in 1970. A keen horticulturalist, uh, Chris developed the spectacular public gardens in his mansion's grounds. Harrison's 1976 song, Cracker Box Palace, was also inspired by Friar Park. 
Harrison's widow Olivia recalled to the Sun in June 12, 2009. I love that song. George was a young man, age 27, when he bought it. The garden was derelict and overgrown. It would take a rare person to look at that and say, this is great. But he just said about restoring it. It's really beautiful, beautiful place. And it was just about doing it for the love of it. The lyrics are derived from phrases inscribed around the grounds at Friar Park. The song has been described as a love song to the house made with its own words. That's a pretty cool story. Good music is always a great story. Hope you enjoyed today's show. With that's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast.